Hi, everybody. Welcome to our second episode, exploring the making of a song from George Harrison's solo album, All Things Must Pass. Last episode, we covered My Sweet Lord, and this time out, we're taking a look at Isn't It a Pity? Once again, I'll be drawing on research and interviews that Ken Womack and I did for our book on the making of the album. The paperback edition of the book is out now, fully revised, and in this episode, we'll take another peek at some of the new information we've uncovered for this new edition of the book. Okay, here's the show. George Harrison famously had a substantial backlog of songs by 1970, one of the oldest being Isn't It a Pity, which dated from around the time of the Beatles' Revolver album in 1966. It's a tribute to George's sensitivity and skill as a songwriter that, when he finally recorded and released the song four years later, its lyrics hadn't dated a bit. In fact, if anything, in the wake of the Beatles' breakup, the song resonated even more. One of the lingering questions in the Beatles' story is how the group could pass on so many songs that, when George released them on his first solo album, would be recognized as brilliant compositions. And as solo expressions of George Harrison's point of view, they were brilliant. The problem that he faced within the Beatles was that his songs didn't always fit the mode of the band's music, as it had largely come to be defined by Lennon and McCartney, and to some extent, by George Martin. In early 1970, George framed the situation this way. The main difficulty was really because of Paul and John having written so many good songs that um, it was difficult for me to write some sort of crummy song and expect the Beatles to record it, already having such fine material. And uh, that was the most difficult thing. And also to, to do a song with the Beatles, it was always a matter of trying to do the song that you thought they'd understand quickest or the song you could get onto the tape the quickest, so not necessarily the song you thought was the best. Isn't It a Pity was certainly such a song. Post-1966, George tried to get the Beatles interested again during the Get Back sessions of January 1969, but they never connected with it. And for his own reference, he eventually taped the studio demo you're hearing now on January 26, 1969. Today, we'll look at how Isn't It a Pity became the most lavishly produced song on All Things Must Pass, and how George's vision grew to be so expansive that he decided to include two different recordings of the song on the finished album. Once again, we'll talk to people who were there, take a look inside Mal Evans' diaries, and we'll deconstruct the orchestral score for the song using a recreation made with digital sample libraries. So join us as we look at the making of George Harrison's Isn't It a Pity on this episode of Producing the Beatles. Some things take so long 
Before he began proper recording sessions for the album, George taped studio demos at Abbey Road on May 26th and 27th, both for the benefit of producer Phil Spector and for the musicians who would be playing on the songs. This demo for Isn't It a Pity, recorded on May 26th, features Ringo on drums and Klaus Vormann on bass. The first pass at a full band arrangement featured different instrumentation than the released versions, including electric harpsichord and Moog synthesizer. This recording hasn't been released, but Spector's mass instrument approach was still dominant, with a dozen players on the session. As we discussed last episode, Beatles assistant Mal Evans studiously kept track of all the players at these sessions in his diary, and once again, I looked at pages from the diary with Mal's biographer, Ken Womack. EMI, and that we have George on acoustic guitar, Ringo on drums, Klaus on bass, and we have in the room Eric Clapton, Bobby Whitlock, John Barham on harpsichord, and then, of course, Pete and Joey from Badfinger playing acoustic guitar. And Mike from Badfinger. On maracas? Right, yeah. Gary Wright comes in around 3.30 to play electric piano. And again, the reason why the time segments are listed by Mal, uh, for example, John Barham's there from 2.30 to 8.30. So he will be paid for six hours of work. That's why Mal would keep track. We have Chris Thomas playing the Moog synthesizer on this song. And as usual, because it's a cast of thousands for this album, is that Martin Kershaw on electric guitar? Ray Gallo. Um, Both of them, I think, were session guitarists at the time. I believe that's correct. Billy Preston on grand piano. And interestingly, in this long omnibus list of names, Mal includes himself. Yes, and, and how does he credit himself? For making tea. Yes, Maxwell made tea. We can only assume that that's a reference to his anvil playing days the previous year ago, January. Ken mentioned Chris Thomas just now, and while Chris was still working with George Martin's production company and was already producing the band Procol Harum on his own, throughout 1970 and 71, he had a little side hustle going, playing the Moog synthesizer because at the time, he was one of the few people in London who knew how to set up and work such a complicated instrument. When we did um, All Things Must Pass, it was actually set up in the studio with everybody playing live, and Spectre and George Harrison came out and sort of looking for a sound, and I mean, it was basically, we got a sound, and like, okay, that'll do. I said, what do you want me to play? And they said, play arpeggios, and they gave me a chord chart. Thomas reckoned he got the call to play on Isn't It a Pity, because he'd gotten on so well with George Harrison during Beatles sessions. But even though he'd worked with the Beatles and was used to being around rock stars, the session for Isn't It a Pity still managed to leave him a little starstruck. I mean, the main thing that was impressive on that session at Abbey Road was it started off with about five of us playing this song. And do you know that song? Do you, have you ever heard of, you've heard of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band? Okay, there's a track, the intro and outro song. The vocalist, he's going, he's blah, 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 you know, Mother Teresa or something, and then on Vibes, Adolf Hitler, and, and then there'll be somebody playing with a little bit of Vibes. And looking very relaxed, Adolf Hitler on Vibes. Nice. Over there, Eric Clapton, ukulele. Hi, Eric. And I was sitting there playing and, and you know, there's a band playing there with three bad fingers and George that's four with the uh, tambourines playing and stuff. And while we're sort of playing, Ringo just sort of walked in and just sat down at the drums. 
sort of a, in the middle of a song, you know, and it's like, what? That's weird. You know, and then the next minute, sort of Billy Preston walked in, and then, like, Eric Clapton walked in. And it was like, I just thought, Christ, this is like the intro and outro, so what's going on? It was almost like it was stage managed. To me, it was almost comical. You know, every couple of minutes, somebody else globally famous walked in and sort of joined the band. I imagine this sort of queue of superstars out in the corridor waiting for their turn to walk in. If you're wondering why you don't hear a Moog synthesizer on the final mix of the song, that's because it's not there. In spite of lengthy rehearsal, Chris Thomas only played Moog on the first recorded take. After that, they dropped the synthesizer and the harpsichord and ran through 18 more takes. Just as he had done on his famous Wall of Sound sessions in Los Angeles, Spectre ran the musicians through endless rehearsal takes to get the sound he wanted. And on take 14, which the Harrison Estate released on the All Things Must Pass 50th Anniversary box set, George offered a bit of wry commentary on this process. Isn't it so shitty? Isn't it a pain? How we do so many takes Now we're doing it again The master take on this day was take 19, which at this point featured a rough electric guitar solo in the coda. George, however, didn't think they'd captured the song, and he decided to move on to the next recording. Instead of the large ensemble of musicians, he thinned out the crowd for a much different sound. Did George find Spectre's large-scale approach too much for Isn't It a Pity? He never said as much in any interview, but for the next few sessions, the number of players on most of the songs was much smaller, and the recordings were generally more intimate. Here's Klaus Vormann, who played bass on these tracks. And of course, like you say, there was a, suddenly Dave Mason would come in, or this coming, and there were too many people coming in and out. It was a little overdone. Yeah, but uh, you see, that, like George noticed that, and, and that's why some of the sudden, then you said, listen, Com, you have to see that this is going to get a little more calm. Let's, let's only have this, this, and this, and then those guys, and that will do for the next day, and then we do it in pity, and we do that. So that, that, of course, came from George, that he tried to get the atmosphere right. And uh, I know that Gary Wright was there, was very intimate. There was not so many people in the studio. And that was yeah. nice. It was a calm session. And, and uh, I guess George knew that beforehand, and it just it was arranged this way. Here's Ken Womack again. So we have George, Klaus Vorman, we have Bobby Whitlock again playing harmonium, Clapton on a Leslie guitar. We have Billy Preston again, and then Gary Wright. And it's interesting how it puts it. So Alan White, when he can. And I would argue that the reason it says Alan White, when he can, would be because Mal, you know, he was the master of ceremonies, the stage manager, I guess, is another way to put it. And he would have made sure that Alan was available. Alan couldn't come in until later. And then there's an addendum literally with an asterisk that says 8 to 12. So 
he worked the session. Uh, he was three hours late, essentially, to the session. It's notable, though, the reason he is playing drums on this is apparently because Ringo's not available. Ringo is listed, but he's not. his name isn't checked. Yes, and so that does suggest to us that perhaps that was George's first choice, and Alan was called later when, when perhaps Ringo wasn't available. You know, it's difficult to know for sure, but it is interesting that they're coming in almost immediately to take another pass at the song. As Mal noted, Alan White, who played percussion on most of the album, sat in on drums for this recording. White would, of course, go on to join the band Yes in 1972, but at this point in his career, he was still a session musician. Here's Alan in a clip from an interview I did for the book. Yeah, I played on the, the slow version, and I thought it was much better myself. It took a long time to get exactly right, because it was just the mood of the song. It took a long time to get down on, on tape, because that song was a lot hard to record it with a lot of people. When there's a smaller group, you could get the feel out of the song better. And because of all the tears Her eyes can't hope to see The beauty that surrounds them Isn't it a pity one of the most distinctive parts of this recording is the phased sound of the piano. Engineer John Leckie, who worked on these sessions, remembers just how manual this effect was. That's done on the mix, so that's with a tailor phaser which is called ADT, or Automatic Double Tracking. You put Beatles and Ken Townsend developed this technique, which is where you had a tape delay, but it was fed from the sync head of the tape machine. So you're listening off replay head, and if you send the signal from the sync head, the record head, which is before the replay head, to a tape machine, at the crossover point, you get phasing. You get Ishiku Park, the phasing, you play it, with the very speed. Basically, it's one knob, and it's like before and after, and as you move it, it swooshes like phasing. But you can kind of play it, move it in between beats kind of thing. And that's what that is on the Isn't it a pity on the piano and the organ? It all goes almost out of tune, you know? Probably because someone went too far. I mean, that may have been me, actually. They recorded takes 20 through 30, with the last marked best. With two recordings of the song in the can, George moved on to the rest of his songs and finally finished tracking sessions for the album on July 3rd, with a final solo session on July 25th. By September, George had moved post-production to the 16-track recording facilities at Trident Studios. The time had arrived to add the orchestral parts, and just as on My Sweet Lord and the other songs on the album, George employed John Barham as the arranger for this recording. Once again, George already had ideas. For the instrumental section of Isn't It a Pity, 
He'd already sketched a melody line as early as that demo from January 1969 that we heard earlier. Isn't it a pity version 1 had the largest arrangement of any recording on All Things Must Pass, with 32 orchestral players recorded on September 19, 1970. The string parts are familiar to anyone who's heard the song, but Barham also wrote parts for flute, piccolo, trumpet, trombone, saxophones, and tuba. These are barely audible in the final mix, really more for texture than anything else. But since Barham sent me a copy of his score for this song, I once again asked composer Joseph Lawrenson to recreate the arrangement using digital sample libraries. I'll do a more detailed walkthrough of these in a bonus mini-episode that I'll post separately. But for now, here are the strings, consisting of 22 players, along with the timpani track. And here's the woodwinds and brass. And here they are together in the final mix, along with George's slide guitar overdubs. Although he didn't have a hand in writing or directing the arrangements, Phil Spector eventually did return for the recording of the orchestral parts. And even though it probably doesn't apply to Isn't It a Pity, John Barham had a memorable exchange with Spector at one of these sessions. Here's Joseph Lawrenson again reading excerpts from Barham's emails to me. My personal experience of Phil as a producer was during the string and brass overdub sessions where only the three of us and the engineer would be present in the control room. I can only remember one time when Phil addressed me directly. During that one session, I don't remember the song. Phil was unhappy with the way that I was conducting the string players. To make his point, he told me that he didn't want his mother to like the strings. I didn't like his tone, so I told him I didn't want his mother to like the strings either. At this point, George started falling about laughing without saying anything. George's laughter lightened the atmosphere and Phil went down to the studio floor and gave me a conducting lesson. Phil didn't make any verbal suggestions for conducting, but he did physically demonstrate. Phil's conducting was very physical, he used more of his body than I did, and after that lesson I began to do the same. Once they'd finished the overdubs of backing vocals and orchestra, the long coda of Isn't It a Pity came to resemble the long coda of Hey Jude, and many writers have noted how Isn't It a Pity, version 1, runs 7 minutes and 10 seconds, just one second shy of Hey Jude's 7 minutes and 11 seconds. Mixed to be almost inaudible is this backing vocal overdub in the coda, which makes the connection to Hey Jude even more explicit. George gave equal attention to the second version of the song, 
overdubbing himself into a vocal chorus and adding Barham's arrangement of two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, and a bassoon. He also called Chris Thomas back and added a Moog synthesizer part that blended in with the woodwinds. By this time, George had decided to release both versions of Isn't It a Pity. Depending on who you ask, Phil Spector usually gets the credit or the blame for the grand production sound of All Things Must Pass. But as we saw with My Sweet Lord, and now with Isn't It a Pity, George himself was fully in charge of the final sound of the album. Klaus Vormann, however, remembers that the scale of the production wasn't completely by design. As a matter of fact, George told me that he wasn't all that happy with it when he heard it after, years after, 30 years later. He said right. it was overproduced. He did much too much and it wasn't necessary. So at, at the time, he was very much into overdubbing, doing another slide guitar and doing another vocal. So it filled up and up. And uh, I, I thought at the time, I actually thought it was too much, which I found a little sad. So uh, maybe he didn't know his plan. <laughs> he would have known his plan better. It was the first time was he was recording by himself. But I mean, everybody loves it. And I love it too. Thanks for listening. Producing the Beatles is written, directed, produced, and presented by me, Jason Krupa. Special thanks to Klaus Vormann, Alan White, Chris Thomas, John Leckie, and John Barham for sharing their memories of working with George Harrison. Thanks to Joseph Lawrenson for recreating the score for Isn't It a Pity and for reading excerpts from John Barham's emails. And thanks to Ken Womack for sharing a glimpse of the Malcolm Frederick Evans archive. If you'd like to hear complete versions of the outtakes we played today, check out the All Things Must Pass box set that the Harrison Estate has released. If you'd like to learn more about the making of All Things Must Pass, check out the book I wrote with Beatles scholar Ken Womack entitled All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison, Clapton, and Other Assorted Love Songs, published by Chicago Review Press and available wherever books are sold. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PTBeatles and for more information, including show notes and references, be sure to visit our website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let everyone know about us every way you can. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform.